Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief, Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with industry leaders and thinkers about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. Designers have been drafting design manifestos for over a hundred years with varying degrees of success and fidelity in their professional practices. According to author Alexandra Franzen, a design manifesto is, quote, a written statement where you publicly declare your intentions, opinions, and vision, end quote. Yet, despite such a clear characterization, there still appears to be gaps in understanding when it comes to the features which distinguish an exemplary design manifesto, as well as the function it serves, if any, in contemporary professional design practices. These days, designers' websites seem to prefer short generic statements that mix their approach to design with lists of technical aptitudes and team biographies. Is this a more client-focused mission statement as opposed to a manifesto? What is the difference between them? Have manifestos been co-opted into what really is a branding exercise with the intent to sell, but somehow still come off looking like they are deeply caring? Perhaps it's a bit of both. In this episode of Bevel, we meet up with Bilan Ackman during Clerkenwell Design Week in London to unpack the current state of design manifestos and to set the record straight on their proper form, function, and value. We discuss some of the industry's most influential design manifestos by heavyweights such as Adolf Loos, Walter Gropius, Dieter Rahms, and Jasper Morrison, and then we examine the particulars of what a design manifesto should include, who should write it, and when. Bilan Ackman is an instructor and communications specialist with over 20 years of experience and who recently led a course in writing design manifestos for the School of Form, part of SWPS University in Warsaw, Poland. Bilan, it's great to have you. I am looking forward to this conversation because I get to talk shop in a way with a a similar communications expert. You swim in a different communication pool than I do, but we both swim in the same water love of communicating. And the reason I want to talk to you is you are developing a bit of an expertise, shall we say, when it comes to writing design manifestos. And so that's what I want to talk about today is writing a design manifesto, what makes a good one, their place in the world today, by world I mean the professional world, professional world of designers, uh, and things to know moving forward. So let's start at the beginning part of that timeline. What is a design manifesto? Let's start with the very basic. What is it? That's a very good question, Peter. Uh, I'd like to say first thank you. Uh, It's great to be here for Clerkenwell Design Week. And I'm very happy to discuss design manifestos with you because, as you said, you are a communications expert. And many different people have many different definitions of design manifestos. There are claims, for example, that a design manifesto can be of any length. A design manifesto must be some kind of political statement, like Manifesto of Futurist Woman. But I have a personal definition that encompasses what undergraduate students that I taught at the School of Form in a course this semester on writing design manifestos had to produce as part of their graduating portfolio. And that definition of a good design manifesto is a personal one, but it's a claim based on reasons because of evidence that a good design manifesto is a process, not a goal, that you can write one many, many times and you're encouraged to do so, that it contains in practical terms at least two things, a reaction to the current state of design and some prescription for how to proceed. So. The examples we looked at in the course uh, included 
the Bauhaus Manifesto by Walter Gropius, and uh, Ornament and Crime by Adolf Luz, and also contemporary design manifestos, for example, the super simple design manifesto of Jasper Morrison. And although some professionals may say that design manifestos are obsolete, that people make them, but what they're really after is jobs, they don't care about career when they're starting out, uh, I beg to differ because my experience with the students was that in terms of the feedback I got, every class there was so much that was new to them, they had never really considered expressing design or going through the exercise of solving a design problem using only words, using only English. In other words, communicating design through language alone rather than glossy photographs of their pieces for their portfolio. And if someone calls themselves a designer because they have a big Pinterest collection of wallpapers and that's the extent of their research into the history and uh, the past of design, uh, I think they're going to have a hard time. They may have a false sense of confidence. They may think they know something when very often I've been told that uh, this process that we went through was profoundly humbling for these students uh, because your brain is a terrible place to work. It's a place for having thoughts, not holding thoughts. And this was the first time in their fourth year and it was successful, so now we're gonna uh, work with the School of Form uh, in Warsaw, Poland, where I'm based, to uh, begin the process in second year. When they created the manifesto, they could then use their whole brain to critically reflect on it, using a critical framework, such as that of, for example, Kolb's, I think that's from the 70s, uh, critical reflection cycle. And in essence, in layman's terms, that means that you first say what happened. I wrote this document which purports to react to my contemporary design environment and my values and what I prescribe for making it better, for change. And then, so what? What is the relevance? And they had to reflect on how am I going to apply this when, for example, I need to create an about us page or I need to market myself or I need to create uh, mission, vision, goals or any one of the commercial marketing, integrated marketing communications documents that uh, designers are required to produce. And then they had to reflect again from what was relevant and what was not to the uh, learning or understanding that they gained. And, and this was a profoundly humbling process. They, did their best to express themselves, put it out on paper, and then they could use their whole brain to reflect. And it's a process, not a goal. The first design manifesto certainly isn't the last, and many of the design manifestos that we looked at came at the end of a designer's life. Okay, so let's, let's focus on that for a bit, because you're, you know, before we get too deep into the value of uh, presenting or, or expecting or teaching design students how to think, write, defend, craft a design manifesto in preparation for their professional advancement, before we get too far into that, let's spend a, still a bit more time talking about the, the let's call them like the, the good ones, the, the design manifestos that uh, you use as object lessons to draw attention to the value of a design manifesto as a uh, product presented to your students. So, who wrote, 
who do you think, who in your mind wrote, you already named off a couple good ones that were on your syllabus, Walter Gropius, uh, Alfred Luce. Uh Let's talk about a, f about a few more. What, what uh, historically speaking, what were some of you think are the most influential design manifestos that if you could expand your syllabus for your students, they would, these, these would be on it? All right, that's, that's a very good question. And, and then the follow-up question is, why are they on that list? So not just which ones do you think are good, why are they good? Well, I believe that the ones I selected are good, the historical examples, because of their impact on how designers approach design. For example, Walter Gropius was reacting to, and I'm going to paraphrase in my own words, the atomization of arts and crafts and decoration and ornament and uh, he wanted to uh, return all of these fine arts to the building and reintegrate because for him they had become uh, you know overly specialized separate disciplines that did not consider how they were a part of a whole and his manifesto uh, also had a prescription for what designers need to learn, which became the Bauhaus School, in order to be uh, integral designers, in my own words. And I'd like to use uh, the Jasper Morrison example because it was a reaction to over-designing things because my personal definition of design is fitness for a particular purpose and I'm quite adamant about that and what I mean by that is a chair has a particular fitness for the purpose of sitting on it can be used to keep the rain off your head but its fitness for that purpose is decidedly less because you can use things the way they were intended and you can use things uh, counter to their purpose right so uh, when it comes to uh, Jasper Morrison uh, and the super simple design manifesto, he was uh, reacting against uh, objects like the Philip Stark grapefruit juicer that breaks easily and anyone who has one probably never uses it. It's just uh, an object but it has you know, no genuine function. Uh, and the example he used was of some wine glasses uh, handmade by a craftsman who had no formal design training. He was just concerned with making a glass that was comfortable to hold and held wine. That was it in terms of his uh, conceptual uh, understanding. But these glasses, according to Jasper Morrison, were super simple in that they invited use and they uh, contributed as part of an experience rather than announcing themselves. Uh, and they were so surprising and delightful to hold, so tactile, that when he couldn't use them for whatever reason, he felt something essential was missing from the experience. And if I wanted to expand the uh, program, I would like to use one from engineering, actually. Uh, Ove Arup, uh, he wrote something that came to be known as the key speech. And if you visit uh, designmanifestos.org, because there's been a resurgence of interest in design manifestos in recent years, you can find hundreds. Um, but I'm not certain if Ove Arup's key speech is there, but it should be. And what the designmanifestos.org says is that many things are manifestos, but they're not stated as manifestos. Then there are other things which are claimed as manifestos which are not. And uh, it's beyond the scope of our conversation, I think, to explore uh, what academics are uh, you know, coming to a consensus about uh, regarding this issue. But in Ove Arup's 
key speech, he laid down uh, the values that he privileged for his company as a reaction to the commercial, you know, build it, forget it. Uh, if there's a problem with the concrete foundation, who cares? We'll both be dead by the time it's discovered. Uh, that some other construction companies engage in. I mean, in Toronto, I'm, and this is hearsay, I'm hearing from uh, friends and relatives that there are many new condominiums with floor-to-ceiling glass windows, but the gaskets don't seal properly, so not only do they leak, but uh, it's generally, uh, you know, box-in-the-sky shoddy construction, just to make a fast buck. And Arup uh, wanted to be clear that good work for Arup was to do the best you possibly could and also to enjoy the process of what you're doing because the process is where you live. And uh, that really resonates with me and I would definitely include it. I would also probably uh, introduce... Um, hmm. Yes, the Scum Manifesto, the society, uh, um, one moment please, it's something uh, against men, but it's, it's a feminist uh, manifesto which also I think applies. Yes, uh, the SCUM Manifesto stands for Society for Cutting Up Men. Um, but it's not an acronym, uh, according to its author, although it appeared in an article which she had written. Uh, the, the point that I would introduce for uh, the SCUM Manifesto is that you know, in terms of uh, design, design is pervasive. For example, in medicine, uh, you know, medicines, when they get to the point of human trials, are tested on men. But women react very differently. And sometimes, you know, quite differently. They're just not as efficacious. So even things like medicine are geared towards uh, men. And I think uh, we need to have uh, a receptivity and a balance in our curriculums to both men and women, because if we don't, uh, I think we're distorting our uh, historical narrative, because many uh, women were also very influential uh, in design, and uh, I want to make sure that uh, it doesn't get lost. Yeah, as far as a list of influential or recognizable design manifestos, there's a bunch that could be thrown onto the syllabus. You have Dieter Rahm's Ten Principles of Good Design, First Things First, Ken Garland, you have others. It seems from what you're saying, uh, or from you know what, what I'm hearing, what you're saying, and, and sort of a basic understanding most people already in the design industry already have when it comes to how to uh, approach a design manifesto is there's a couple basic consistent tenets to its existence and you've already in essence mapped them out. They tend to have a reactionary element to something, either an issue in the time, like something going on the, the sign of the times, uh, they could be technologically driven, whatever. But point is, is that they're uh, a reaction, they're a statement of a reaction against some a dominant prevailing issue going on in the industry at that time, and then putting forward a series of suggestions or uh, emphatic uh, desires and requirements on how to fix those issues. So those two basic points, would you agree those are the kind of the main uh, parallels in, in good manifestos? So you said something interesting, and I, it was, I'm glad you said it because it helps me 
draw it, draw it into this next point, which is that uh, manifest design manifestos are seeing a bit of a resurgence. You know, there's it, it's it, kind of like uh, this, the seasons come and go, right? And the season has come back for design manifestos. There's a growing interest in them today. Uh, let's talk about that in terms of design manifestos now, um, and let's talk about it getting back to how you presented it to your students. So let me ask you, how, uh, you know, like, how, in terms of projecting their relevancy, what did you say to your students who are training to be designers, but now are being presented with this new set of tools? How did you present a design manifesto as something of relevance that they should pay attention to. Mm -hmm. You already touched on it a bit more, but now I want to drill a little bit more into that. And the reason I want to drill a little bit more into that is because I'm very interested in how a design manifesto fits into a professional scope, meaning these are, these are professionals that need to construct a way to make a living. And how does a design manifesto fit into that? So I threw a lot at you. Let's say two questions. How are you presenting the relevance of a design manifesto to students, and how does it fit into the professional into their professional work? Since let's be honest, schedule and budget are the dominating factors for most professional designers. Oh, that's a very good question, and uh, certainly some of my students uh, were perhaps a little skeptical at first because they had never been asked to produce something like this, and. What I said to them, because we had a form of classwork where we had preparation, readings, discussion in class, and then reflection in written form after the class, sometimes before the class. Uh, and they had to both uh, reflect and react to certain key questions, and they had to reply and react to one other student, preferably two. So what I'm gonna say is a broad overgeneralization of what I told them over the course of the program, but from the marketing dimension, if you have a design manifesto, you can use it as a tool, as a document, in order to maintain cohesive, coherent marketing communications across all your channels. Because the value of integrated marketing communications is that wherever your prospect, your, later your customer, later your client encounters you or your brand, the same message, the same values, should be there because if you don't it muddies the waters and people get confused uh, to penetrate the consciousness of the average person these days when we are so inundated with marketing messages you must be consistent and super super simple because only with repeated exposure only with multiple encounters will that message penetrate the consciousness. And it helps the designer to dis, you know, choose where to position themselves in the mind of their consumer. Because as a process of reaction and prescription, they can become honest and uh, straight dealing with themselves because the person we fool the most of course is ourselves and come to some conclusions about uh, what they really value not what they tell other people but what they value because the uh, early manifestos are for the individual uh, later in your career uh, you might feel confident to share. And the reason that uh, the most successful manifestos that had an impact on uh, design thinking and the world uh, appeared at the end of the designers' lives or close to it, or you know, once they had a significant uh, amount of experience, uh, is because they had 
gone through this process many, 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 many times. That's my claim. I think it's important to, to draw attention to that because you said something pretty, I think, important there. That a design manifesto, especially when uh, being presented as a, a set of, like a toolkit to students at that, at such an early stage in their career. In fact, they, they might not even be in a career yet, right? They're getting ready to enter the career field of design. Presenting them with the requirement to start wrapping their brain around, as you said early on in the conversation, needing to articulate in a language what design is, or what design means to them, uh, I think presents an interesting situation because it is not, I think, intended to be an outfacing, an outward-facing document. So you're not, you're not teaching them how to write a a, a brand message or uh, something that they'll help that will help them get a job. You're teaching them, in essence, how to write an inward-facing document, meaning how to how to write something that will help them. Will, will help them, not that will. Uh, uh, show up on Google searches because it has the right keywords or something. Not something that'll catch the attention of uh, you know, the, the media or clients. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. I've taught digital marketing and integrated marketing communications and personal branding features in both of those. This is a kind of internal marketing message for an individual at this stage in their careers. So, it's, so would it be safe to say that you would strongly caution any of your students looking at a design manifesto, in essence, through the wrong lens, meaning looking at it as a marketing tool? Was it, is it safe to say that you would strongly discourage them from looking at that, looking at it in that way? Instead, they should look at it as uh, their own a, a way to synthesize their own inner thoughts and inner workings. Because the reason I want to make that distinction is so much effort is put in the design education system to construct a curriculum that prepares the student first and foremost to be employable. And that being the case... This will help. Well then, okay, let's talk about that. How will this help them be employable? It helps people to close their mouth and open their ears and eyes. And is that a problem right now? And I'm not. I'm not saying that like flippantly or euphemistically. Like let's let you know, let's take a page from the best design manifestos themselves that were written at a time in reaction to something that was going on at that time. Maybe there's something significant to what you just said, which is a need to close your mouth and open your ears at a time when everyone is told. We want to hear your story. We want to hear your narrative. Those two seem at odds. Those two sentiments seem at odds with each other, right? We live in a social media world that only works if everyone's talking all the time. And yet here you're suggesting that they talk less, listen more. And the design manifesto will help them do that, correct? Yes. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by that? Yes, because uh, what they produced by the end of the course was significantly better than anything they could have produced on their own. However, uh, the feedback I got from the students was, and this is funny, but different disciplines have different things that they take to be common knowledge, but it's not common knowledge. And uh, sometimes it makes sense to ask friends and colleagues, what's obvious in your field that you just think is not worth mentioning? And, and this is the curse of knowledge. In, Academia, because I'm an academic for 20 years and I'm a researcher, we say you don't know what you think until you see it. They didn't know what they thought until they saw what they had produced. And the practical production is a lot harder to fantasize about than the cloudy image in their mind. So this process, I've mentioned already that it was humbling, but uh, I want to segue, but it's a related segue, into a video by David Bull. He's a carver. And 
as he was talking about his uh, process of uh, becoming a better carver, in his 60s, he visited with a master uh, Japanese carver, Ito-san. And this was from the ASMR show at the Design Museum today. And uh, when he was there, because he had uh, been challenging himself and, and teaching himself and uh, improving his craft, in the videos that uh, form the basis of a documentary, you can see him just watching uh, the master carver work. And when he uh, sadly passed away, uh, his family uh, gifted uh, Ito-san's knife, which is a very fine carving knife. So fine that uh, when David Bull um, saw it for the first time, he knew he could not use this knife. He would break it because he was still using too much force. And he said something that uh, pertains to design manifestos. Young people, they have so much energy. They have so much force and strength. But older people, older craftsmen, they have finesse. That was the exact word he chose. And the process of creating your first design manifesto uh, and then reading it for any ethical designer, they're going to see that it's, it's not satisfying. And it's that dissatisfaction which is planting the seed. Okay, hmm, it's not there yet. I gotta go out, I gotta learn some more, I gotta find some new things. And when it comes to professionals who uh, complain about young designers who talk too much and have too many ideas and uh, leave the studio because they don't feel anyone's listening to them, Design is still a, a craft tradition where the apprentice needs to be receptive and patient and open because that's how you learn. And so teaching students how to write a design manifesto is like, is, is in essence tapping into that very process you just described where there is uh, it, it, you're in a, it's a craft-based system where you have someone producing a product that hands it to the apprentice produces a product, in this case a design manifesto, hands it to the master who refines it, teaches them skill sets, hands it back to them and says, do it again and keep doing it and doing it, doing it until you get it right kind of thing. Absolutely. We went through an extensive process of revision plus as a requirement they had to use their words to solve the design problem that was given to them every class. So design manifesto, especially in what, when, when looked at at this moment in a designer's development, meaning early in their development, the insistence on putting effort into crafting and refining a design manifesto is really about uh, teaching design, potential designers, designers, you know, not just design students, but potential designers, how to think about design and then how to communicate design. And that second part is an important part because much of the criticism of the design industry is an inability to articulate design, causing problems, causing rifts between client designer expectations, Later on, problems with uh, professional building, issues with even basic things like self-promotion, but not in a crass branding way, but in a way that has meaning. The reason, to me, that's relevant, the reason that's worth talking a bit, a bit more about, and the reason you know, I, I think it's fun to, to talk to you about this exercise is because if you look at the vast majority of, okay, that's, that's a little unfair to say vast majority, but a, a, a uh, let's at least call it a preponderance of websites for designers, so design firm websites. Inevitably, they're going to have a, an about page or they love the word, you know, mission statement or manifesto, and you read it, 
And it's anything but a manifesto. It's a savage platitude, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a list of things that almost have no bearing. They're client-facing statements, but I can't imagine a client getting anything of value out of these lists because you get, you know, they're, at, at most they're, I mean, once you sort of remove the, some of the, the functional basics of a website like team biographies and photography, right? Good, you need that. You need that stuff on your on your page, but you also get crap like uh, wording like "license to practice in Ontario," "we deliver on time and on budget." Yeah, cliches. Yeah, specialize in a wide array of work. Who cares? How can you specialize in a wide array of work? You can't. It's exactly it's the pointlessness of these litanies of uh, brand statements. And so the reason this is, I think, fascinating is because that's that seems like the natural end point of what a designer thinks an outward-facing form of communication is. None of it represents a manifesto, a true manifesto in the ways that we're describing. And so getting back to sort of you know, why, we're, why we're even talking about this, there's a relevancy to putting effort into crafting a manifesto because it helps you not fall into that useless trap that everyone else, every other firm does, almost co copying and pasting other firms is uh, uh, about page and An using open it themselves. Secret. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. And here's the thing. Again, I want these students to have research-based claims that are supported by reasons because of evidence. I want them to apply some organizational structure to their texts, whether it's chronological or categorical, or like, for example, chronological when describing a process. And the rigor that I impressed upon them for creating these designer manifestos is an essential skill for academics who wish to get published, clarity above all, and no unsupported claims. And if they get that habit, when they then proceed to be asked later in their careers, hey, can you write an about me page? Or hey, can you, you know, create a mission, vision, goals, you know, you know, we'll talk and then you'll write it down. Whatever happens with uh, any kind of written design document that they may be asked to perform or more likely that they have to evaluate that's created by a marketing team externally or internally, uh, they will have uh, skills if they proceed because it was a one-year course at the end of the fourth year but now we're going to do it from the second year uh, so that they have more time to develop their research-based, evidence-based, structurally organized thoughts because what we're creating in the mind is a scaffolding that doesn't exist unless you're required to communicate in language and the writer cannot be standing over the shoulder of the reader saying, oh, that's not what I meant. So they must be clear and they must be coherent and they must be cohesive. The sentences have to stick together and the paragraphs have to be on one topic and one topic alone and you have to make logical sense. It has to withstand criticism. So no sweeping generalizations, no unsupported claims, I've said that already. Uh, and they had no experience before this course on, on these things. Um, when it comes to the professional world, you know, you've mentioned websites. Uh, Carol Murlach's uh, website, he's an instructor at the School of Form where I teach, but he also teaches at Parsons in New York. And he's an incredibly gifted designer and his website has, of course, images of his work, but what's remarkable is, should you go there, the text is coherent, it is logical, it describes the process of creating his stools in a way that you can follow. He creates a mental picture 
of a room. He doesn't say, hey, look at me, how smart I am. Instead, he says, come, see what I found. And he leads you through a virtual exhibit, like a museum, where his arguments are his exhibits. And it's a very good example of uh, written communication. It, contemporary. You can visit it today. I can see a certain situation where I could see students being somewhat perplexed and baffled by what is being asked of them in this exercise. Partially because uh, the, the, the generalized expectation of what a manifesto is, for one thing, is, is misleading. Right? So the idea of a manifesto as an, uh, that it's an outward-facing document is how most people think of it, when in fact it should be treated, as we've already said, as an inward-facing document. Right. However, what's perplexing in this situation is it's an, outward, it's an inward-facing document that they're showing to someone, i.e. you. Right. Now, we've already gone over at length the value of that, but the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I can find students being kind of confused about what con like what the end product should be it's almost like once they get there they'll look back and go ah i get it but getting them to that i can see them getting like really wrapped up and stressed out i mean design students are naturally prone to being stressed <laughs> out over everything anyway so maybe this is a, a no-brainer but you know what they what they are expected what they think that is expected of them during their education is to make things and then show it for approval. And in a way, this manifesto process isn't that much different. However, what the product is, is not really supposed to be seen by anyone else eventually. There's, there's a tension there. There's an interesting, you gotta, you gotta do a couple interesting mental backflips to land on the spot where you're, you can find comfort and like, okay, I know where I'm going with this. And design students are a finicky, perplexing bunch to begin with, right? It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a tough ask. I mean, you see where I'm going with this, right? Like it, I think so. It's a tough ask where they would much rather just show you sketches and say, what do you think about my chair, right? Because they're being taught to make something to show to the world. Whereas a design manifesto, the way we've been, been describing it up until now, is really a tool for themselves to be better designers as they move through their the trajectory of their design career. Very odd, very, very odd forces at play in this. I mean, well, this touches on uh, teaching methodology because I was lucky that I had a very talented group who uh, approached the task uh, trusting that they were beginning a journey and they would end up somewhere, but they didn't know at the beginning where they would end up. And I'm going to blow right past the cliche that life must be lived forwards, but it can only be understood backwards. And many students, in uh, because we had international students, came from places where there was a different approach to the student-teacher dynamic, where the students feared the teachers. And uh, I bet you there's a lot of listeners in the Western world to this, listening to this podcast thinking, oh, if only that was the way it is here. <laughs> if only they feared us. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it's one... I think you're talking about uh, some situations that we've heard in the news in North America where there's no respect or uh, this, the class is uh, completely chaotic and the inmates are running the asylum. That's exactly the metaphor I was thinking, yeah. Uh, in, for some reason, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli comes to mind uh, and it was paraphrased in The Godfather that you must be feared and loved, but not hated. I don't agree fully when it comes to teaching. Uh, I really wa just want, I wanted to say that if you uh, see yourself on one side of a table and your teacher on the other side of the table, then there's a 
potential for the interaction to be adversarial or combative, uh, but I made it clear to them that we are all sitting on the same side of the table and we have this document that we need to produce. They had to give me early drafts. I gave them early feedback. They refined the drafts and then the final product was uh, the result of their writing and my feedback. So it wasn't something like in grade school where you did your best and gave the essay to the teacher and then they gave you a grade. That's not how it worked. My aim, and I made this clear to them, was to help them produce the best design manifesto they possibly could at this stage in their career. And it was very successful. Um, not only in terms of what they produced, but I still get messages from time to time. Uh, you know, messages like, you know, thank you, and it was really great. And, uh, you know, sometimes could you help me look at, you know, look at something. Uh, even if they wrote uh, a document which doesn't fulfill uh, the two main criteria of a design manifesto, they certainly uh, came back with an appreciation of research and research-based written communication. They could see how impactful research-based communication can be when it's well-structured and they had new aspirations because we don't improve our communication skills unless we uh, have new needs and if nothing else I created a new need in them right yeah what I think is interesting is how so much effort is put in the design education system to impress upon the kids that design is a process and yet how little effort is put in teaching design students how to look at communication as a process. Communication, if, you are, if you're gifted and it's part of your mental makeup anyway, great. You'll, get, you'll hit the ground running and get farther in the industry. But many of them don't have that ingrained skill set and the education system doesn't help them develop it. And so while everything is a process, uh, this communication skill set that you present to these kids via the tool of a design manifesto is in fact setting them up to help fill, if not fill the gaps, then at least grease the wheels to get them over the humps of future in, uh, hurdles they'll face in their careers, i.e. how to talk to principals in the firm, how to talk to clients, how to engage with mentors, how not to just sit there like a scared mouse in a corner, or even worse, be bombastic and egotistical and demanding attention even though you've only been at the table for six months, right? All these things. What you're teaching them is a mindset and that mindset helps make them able to navigate the choppy waters of what will be a tough career to begin with. The creative endeavor in any sense is always tough and it's great to have uh, a set of skills where you are prepared to say, as we've already said, uh, to, to sit quietly and reflect and refine and reassess and then move forward and then do that whole thing over again. Reflect, refine, reassess, move forward and be able to talk to people intelligently about it. Absolutely. I mean, many people, if you ask them on the street, uh, understanding is enough. You know, you understand how to make a chair, it's enough. But that's the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy when it comes to research. And above that, you have, uh, for, for criticality, you need to be able to analyze and evaluate and synthesize and create new things and communicate all those things you just did. Like you made, you're, you're bang on, right? You, one would argue, and a lot of designers do argue this, that they're, they say the proof is in the pudding, right? Here's my product, I made a chair, sit in it. If you like it, that's all I, you need to know. No, that's not enough. If you can't stand beside that chair as a designer and explain your design, 
coherently, right? Communicate your design to the, the design involved in creating that chair. If you cannot stand beside and communicate it, then there's a gap in your design process. You can't just hope to stand quietly and say, ta-da, judge me only by my work. Well, maybe, but not enough. Sorry, that's just not enough. If you can't stand there and say, this is why I did what I did, there's a, there's a, there's a problematic gap from which other problems will arise. I fully agree, Peter. I could show you two chairs and they may look physically identical, but one of them comes from uh, locally sourced, uh, sustainably grown and harvested wood and is of a single kind of wood that can be uh, broken down in the future to make something else. And it may look exactly like a second chair, which is made of wood uh, imported from somewhere else that you don't know. And uh, it's coated in a fire retardant that outgasses when it catches uh, fire. That's a hazard to your health. I mean, maybe that's not the best example, but you know, we're- No, but you, 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 you can take it one step further. You say there's two chairs that are side by side. They look identical. How do you know which is which? How do you know which is better? Assuming they're not identical, assuming they're not the same chair, just, you know, yeah. they came off the assembly line and there's, there's serial number 108 and there's serial number 109, right? Let's just assume they're not the same chair, but they look astonishingly similar. How do you know which is, which is the right, which is a good one, which is good, which is designed well, checks all of those boxes. How do you know? Someone needs to communicate it to you. Exactly. And uh, if they can't be standing next to the chair, they need to have it in written form. Uh, because then they can literally stand by their statement. You can't stand by a statement if you haven't made one. And, you know, we're at Clerkenwell Design Week uh, here, and there's a lot more sustainability and circular economy presence here, which is a stark contrast to Salone, in Milan, which was uh, very much, in my opinion only, uh, a lot of greenwashing. Here you have, uh, for example, processes that uh, take uh, recycled nylon from fishing nets, for example. I think it's called uh, Econil. And they can decompose that nylon waste back to uh, an oil state and then produce virgin nylon, which has exactly the same performance characteristics as uh, newly manufactured nylon created from petroleum. And this is great because now we have a huge supply of uh, waste nylon that we can reclaim and make new things out of it. And uh, I saw a couch, I think it was called uh, Hub. Habibi or something like that. But the couch was made from 100% post-consumer uh, waste and it was very comfortable to sit in. And when you are done with the couch, you can contact the company and they will take the couch and they will strip it down uh, and use all the materials again. It's 100% recyclable couch. And, and I think that's great. Um, we need more of that. I mean, I'm trying to bring together uh, institutions in the Netherlands and uh, Poland uh, together to have a common vocabulary for sustainability and uh, circular economy uh, in the sphere of design because that's still lacking. We don't have a common vocabulary. There's no uh, document of, you know, core principles of how to bring uh, sustainability and circularity to the center of uh, curricula in these uh, design institutions. Uh, and for that reason, uh, many young designers still see design as making pretty things. 
Well, no, sorry. You need to put sustainability at the center, and this is evidence-based. And uh, many of the design manifestos that the students created uh, were a reaction against the consumer consumption collapse trajectory that the whole world is on, where the more stuff you have, uh, the more stuff you want. Like, you know, like sugar, the more sugar you have, the more you want. And, and the point is, because I am getting to a point, when you start with sustainability and, and, and circular economy at the very beginning, your design choices in the decision tree are very, very different. For example, you're not going to make chairs out of many materials because it's harder to recycle. You'll make it out of one material or two materials, and those materials will, can be reclaimed. And that's the sort of thing that a student can privilege. So then later, when they're uh, looking for jobs and, and getting jobs, uh, the kinds of solutions that they come up with will be aligned with the values of their firm, their client, and themselves, integrated. And that's not possible if you don't write things down. Agreed. Well, this has been great. I'm glad we were able to talk about this because it helps me uh, present something that bugs me a lot, being a communi professional communicator, which is I'm often expected to have to decode the either non-existent communications of designers or the ramblings of designers. It's, and, and it falls to me to have to uh, connect the dots and decode. And I would much rather be... Uh, be meeting designers that have an ability like I don't expect them to be journalists I don't expect them to be novelists but it would be great if I didn't have to bend over backwards to try and read their mind if instead they had an ability to communicate what they were doing why they were doing it why what they're doing is important all those things we've already been talking about so hopefully they take your classes or they eventually they take your class and then a few years down the road they come to me <laughs> And I'm very happy that they have been taught how to communicate because then that makes me want to uh, communicate with them more and it helps the media, helps me and the media tell their story. So I want to say thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, if uh, any students out there listening, don't be intimidated by uh, what you think a manifesto is asking. Dive in head first. Find a, a professor who will teach you this skill set because you need it. You really do need it. May I add one last thing, Peter? Sure. Let's take two students with uh, equal portfolios and equal uh, pieces. But one of them is uh, articulate, communicates clearly, and the other one does not. Which one do you think will advance faster and further? Exactly. And here's the kicker, because academic writing which uh, is the approach that uh, I brought to design manifestos, research-based, evidence-based, uh, requiring students to uh, you know, critically examine and reflect on what came before in terms of uh, design communication, focusing on design manifestos. And the more they engaged in the process, the more sincerely they did, I noticed a change in how they spoke because the more they wrote, the more their spoken English began to approximate their written English, because they're two different languages, actually. Uh, and that's a bold statement, but what I mean is, speaking is ephemeral, but writing is command language, because the whole purpose of writing is so that you can give orders at a distance, and you can persuade at a distance, so that the office uh, boss can send a message to the factory floor and have it read. And that's why reading is privileged in uh, many public school systems, but not writing. Because reading and speaking, uh, well, speaking, everybody has a certain level of uh, you know, ability in spoken oral communication and discourse. But when you start to write, you're shifting your focus into uh, the command language. And that's why 
I'm certain many of my students, certainly the ones who go far, uh, will continue to return to their design manifesto and when it no longer serves, when they've grown and developed, they're going to write another one and another one. And meanwhile, they're going to be a little quieter in the uh, professional design offices because every time they write one, that level of dissatisfaction, it's, it's humbling. And uh, they'll keep their ears open, their eyes open, like David Bull, the carver. And at the end of that, when they do speak, people will listen because they're not just making noise. They're flexing muscles, muscles they've learned over this process. Y you know, my daughter's five, and you know what she said to me once? She said, when you use too many words, there's not enough space to mean anything. <laughs> I thought that was cute. That was cute. Spoken from the daughter of a professional communicator. She <laughs> has a slight upper hand, shall we say. Maybe. All right. Thank this you has been again. great. Thanks, Bilan. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com, where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, design listeners, we encourage you to make it good, make it clear, and make it count. <laughs>